Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to get to talk to you. You do some very, very cool things here. And I'd love for you to kind of give us a brief introduction to who you are and what you do. Yeah, no dramas. Thank you very much for having me. So I am Dr. Claire Madden and I'm the head veterinarian here at SeaWorld uh, on the beautiful Gold Coast uh, in Australia. So uh, very fortunate to be in this role. And I suppose one of the beauties about the role is not only do I get to work with all the incredible animals here at SeaWorld, but we also have a sister park, um, which is called Paradise Country, where I get to work with farm animals and the terrestrial Australian native animals. So we've got koalas, kangaroos, got wombats and emus and everything over there. So I've got a real plethora of species that I get to work with every day. That is so cool. Plus you're on the Gold Coast, which is like quite possibly the most beautiful place ever. So pretty lucky all around. Yeah, I might be pretty biased. I grew up on the Gold Coast and I do feel it's a pretty incredible place to live. We've got beautiful weather all year round and uh, we live on a, such a pristine coastline. So yes, ticking a lot of boxes, that's for sure. Absolutely. So do you think growing up on the Gold Coast kind of played a role in you deciding what you're going to do with your life, like taking you to where you are now? When did you kind of like fall in love with the ocean or were you like exposed to it when you were younger? Look, that's a really good question. And it's probably a, a quite a common question I get asked is when did I first fall in love with animals or what was that um, that that moment and to be totally honest with you yeah probably living on the Gold Coast had a big part of it because there was a huge appreciation when I was growing up for whales we do have a a, a huge number of humpback whales that do migrate past the coastline here so as a, a young kid I really was so infatuated with whales that was my first love and desire with any animal and and when I was in primary school, I had my grade five teacher tell me that every girl my age wanted to be a marine biologist. And I got a very, yeah, I got so disheartened because she said every girl your age loves dolphins and wants to be a marine biologist. So then I kind of, it really had a bit of an impact on me because I then started to go more towards the terrestrial based or land based animals. Um, and started to sort of have an affinity or desire to work with land-based animals. So I was always, you know, in love with our marine animals from a very young age. But look, I've had this conversation with my parents because I never grew up on a farm. I never grew up with pets even in the house. Um, neither of my parents had a career in, in animals. And we really don't know what that defining moment was for me where I uh, fell in love with animals because it's been for as long as I can remember from a wee young age, I've just had this massive deep-seated desire and, and passion to want to work and dedicate my life to animals. And to be honest, I, I don't know where it came from, but I'm, I'm glad I, I've got that passion and I've followed it. I love that. I love that your teacher said like the everyone your age is obsessed with whales and dolphins because I feel like it's true. Like all young girls definitely yeah. go through that phase and then just like yeah, let's never leave it. You know, it's fine. That, that's certainly what, as a conservationist, that's certainly one one thing that you've just tapped into that I really focus on because I do a lot of school talks and and science talks and empowering girls to get into science when they get older. But one thing that I really wish for is that kids didn't grow out of that love for animals. Absolutely, you know, kids 
love little tuckers. They just love animals and for whatever reason they grow out of that love and it's a big passion of mine to try and to try and encourage kids to hold on to that passion and pursue a career like we have. Absolutely. Was it kind of like a defining moment for you when you realized that like you could pursue a career with your love of animals and that it didn't just have to be like a love for you, but you could actually like do something with it? Yeah, and I and I think because as I said, I didn't have pets or animals in my household. For me, I had to go and interact with animals outside of the family home. So I was volunteering at the local uh, dog pound and, and cleaning out cages as a young age, volunteering as a wildlife carer and getting those injured birds in. And those were the sort of things I was doing from a young age because I didn't have that ability to connect with animals at home. So I think that was one facet for me to be able to, you know, I had to kind of reach out to have bring animals into my life. Um, but the other defining moment for me was, I don't know if you've heard of the, he's an environmental scientist, Dr. David Suzuki. Um, oh, he's yes. an author and, yeah, look, he's, he's written numerous books and, and The Sacred Balance was a book of his that was one of his first novels and I read that as a teenager and that for me was a moment that told me I could bring science and animals together. Um, so that book had a big impact because he proved through science that we need the world around us. It wasn't just I love animals because they're cute. It was sort of that book that that led me to down that that route that I love animals because we need animals. I love animals because they're cute, but we need the ecosystem and we need yeah. those animals to help sustain ecosystems to effectively sustain us and to sustain the beautiful world around us. So there was a couple of moments there. As I say, I didn't have animals at home, so I had to connect outside of home. And David Suzuki's The Sacred Balance, I still read it. Um, one of my favourite books. If you haven't read it, listeners, be sure to go and get hold of it and, and read it. It's a brilliant book. Absolutely. That's amazing. So like what kind of school did you go through? Like did you do your undergrad and then pursue vet school? Because you, you mentioned you're a vet for SeaWorld and I feel like a lot of vet schools don't touch on how to take care of huge marine mammals. So what was your kind of path through school like? Yeah, so um, obviously everybody has a different path. But for me, I started as a zookeeper. Um, so my career when I first left school is I did a Bachelor of Science majoring in wildlife biology. Um, and from that degree, I, I went out and I worked in a couple of zoos here in Australia as a zookeeper. Um, is, as part of that, I also did a uh, honours research project looking at uh, short-beaked echidnas, which is one of our incredibly unique yet adorable Australian native animals. Sort of looks like a hedgehog. Um, they're an ant-eating um, hedgehog, but they're, they're unique to Australia and Papua New Guinea. And I did a two-year study on echidnas and I was actually going to go back and further that study and do my PhD on echidnas and the vet at the zoo that I worked at said to me being an echidna specialist isn't going to take you around the world why don't you become a vet because I was really keen to just take my zookeeping further because I wanted to make a bigger impact from a conservation perspective yeah. So I did. I applied for vet school. I, I was like most people. I'm not smart enough for vet school. And that's why I'd never thought of it as a career possibility for me. I didn't think my passion for animals would lead down the path of becoming a vet. Um, but things happen for a reason. And I applied and, and got the grades to get in. 
Um, so I, I did my veterinary degree. So whilst I was an undergraduate at vet school, I was going back to the two zoos that I worked at as a zookeeper. So I had a bit of an edge upon um, other people who were keen to get into zoo and wildlife because I already had those connections from when I was a keeper. Um, and then I then once I graduated, so I was doing volunteer work and basically student placement at those zoos. And then when I graduated, I went back to those zoos and I said, well, I'm a vet now. You've got to give me some casual work, which they did. Um, so I did do a small animal internship straight out of school. Um, and that was a surgical, surgery and a medicine internship. And that was a brilliant year, even though I wasn't focused on doing dogs and cats. Um, doing that small animal internship uh, really cemented everything that I knew uh, and had learnt at vet school. And then from there went on and, and really pursued the, the zoo world with my veterinary degree and, and ultimately ended up here at SeaWorld. I was volunteering as a vet here at SeaWorld before I was offered the position. So again, just seeking opportunities as they arose um, and, and was very, very fortunate to be given a brilliant opportunity by the, the previous vet that was working here. Um, uh, he, he invited me to come back and, and, and here I am. I love that. That is amazing. So what does like, not that there's ever like a typical day in your life, because no two days are ever the same for a job like this, but what are you doing as a vet at SeaWorld? Like what is your typical day? What animals are you looking after? What's kind of, what's your to-do list? Yes. So, I mean, the, the collection of animals that we have here um, under our care, uh, we, we have a, a population of inshore and offshore bottlenose dolphins. Uh, we have polar bears, we have penguins, we have water birds, and we have three species of seals here at SeaWorld. Um, so they certainly keep me busy. And a, and a large component of my job, which is a huge facet of being a zoo vet, is what we call preventative medicine. So we do a lot of things with the animals to ensure that they don't become sick. So the huge component of my work is preventing them from becoming unwell. I don't want to spend a large proportion of my day treating unwell animals. Um, so just like dogs and cats at home that get wormed regularly, tick prevention, vaccinated, um, those are the sorts of things that we do with the animals here. Um, but a big component because of the species that I work with is our animals do it voluntary. So a big component of um, taking blood or giving an injection in an animal, we get the animals to participate in that. So there's no restraint involved. So, so one of cool. the positive things, yeah, one of the positive things with my job is I need to build a rapport and a positive relationship with the animals so I can do these things with them. So that's one of the, the hardest parts of my job is bonding and spending a lot of time with the animals outside of the veterinary context. That is so cool. And actually, speaking of that, I have a couple of questions about this because you have previously talked about blood transfusions with dolphins. So yeah. how are you doing blood transfusions with dolphins? Why would a dolphin need blood transfusions? Like what's kind of happening here? Yeah, so that was a unique case. It's absolutely not something that's a day-to-day -day regular routine thing for me. Uh, we had a we had an unfortunate uh, case with one of our female um, inshore bottlenose dolphins, Kyra, who for whatever reason, which we're still unsure of, uh, had inflammation of her stomach. 
which led to her losing blood into that stomach. And as a result of that, whilst we could turn that, that inflammation around with medications, I had to um, give her blood uh, because of the blood loss that was involved. So we utilised two of our male dolphins who are here at SeaWorld as donors, um, and we were able to use their blood um, to give to Kaya whilst those blood levels were so low. That is so cool. That like yeah. So it's yeah. Are dolphins kind of like humans, where they could have different blood types, or is kind of like all dolphin blood the same? No, it's a, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's, it's very similar to dogs or, or humans. It's they do have different blood types, so we did have to check to make sure that there was no cross reaction before she received it with the two boys we chose. Um, but there was no reaction there, and and ultimately Kyra is still with us today, and she's pulled through that episode, so everything worked out well. But the technique that we used to collect the blood and then to administer the blood and the medications she received um, to stop her from having a reaction to the blood product etc is all exactly the same as human medicine or, or veterinary medicine with the other species so we just adapted it to the dolphin and and going on to that voluntary participation of our animals it really helped um, yeah. with us being able to do this in a minimally stressful environment and ultimately we were able to save Kyra was because these animals do participate in all of their health care as part of their routine Absolutely. I feel like being a vet is like one thing to have to deal with dogs and cats. Like being a vet is so difficult because you have to deal with these animals that aren't like you can't speak to them, but then throw in the fact that they're marine mammals and they live in the water and it just adds a whole other element to it that must be like crazy to work around sometimes. Yeah, well, there's two things on that. I do say to people, I think my job's easier than a human doctor because my animals don't talk and I sometimes think talking can skew the science so for me because my my patients don't talk I rely purely on the science so I take that but whenever I talk as as my job being easy but whenever I talk to a health practitioner from the human world they don't believe that that's the case they think having their patients have a voice makes their job that little bit easier but I don't think so being with them like in the water must be like so difficult sometimes yeah, and that's what I was going to say is the animals here at SeaWorld are so beautifully trained and so conditioned with their participation in healthcare that I actually find it easy to do healthcare on these animals than my own two dogs at home. So oh, being wow. able to take blood from my home, I have to restrain him. It's a big hoo-ha-ha. He hates it. He knows mum's coming to get his annual blood test. Um, and I actually joke about it to think that my job here at SeaWorld, the animals are far better trained than my my own fur baby at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's fine. He's just, it's you're allowed to disrespect your parents. You can be mean to your parents. He can sass yeah, you, right. but the animals have to have respect for you. Yeah, that's potentially what's going on. <laughs> now, also as a SeaWorld vet, you do a lot of help with the whale entanglements that happen on the Gold Coast, which I would love to get into because it's happening mm. more and more often now. Like just recently, you guys were out for a rescue. So how did you guys get involved in that? And what's going on with whale entanglements? What are they? What's happening kind of thing? Yeah, so um, that's another big facet of the work is not only looking after the collection of um, animals that we have here at SeaWorld, but there's a huge component of my work, which is the unplanned or, un you know, unpredictable work is, is the rescues of any marine animals. So uh, we have a SeaWorld Research and Rescue Foundation that does look after all the marine life. 
basically all along the east coast of Australia, but with particular focus here off Queensland. Um, yeah, so the whale disentanglement work, um, as I said at the beginning of the, the conversation, we do have a very healthy number or a healthy population of humpback whales that migrate up the east coast of Australia. Um, at the moment, this time of year, they're all starting to head back south, um, down back down into the cooler waters. And unfortunately for these beautiful creatures, as they're sort of traversing our coastline is there are a lot of obstacles for them and and unfortunately they do get caught up in these obstacles and we've seen a variety of obstacles particularly this whale season we've had um, them dragging uh, commercial fishing gear uh, we've had them dragging uh, what's called an FAD which is a fish aggregate device which is designed to attract fish so that's part of more the recreational fishing side of things and then uh, we've also had two uh, entanglements associated with the shark control program so we do have shark nets and and um, drum lines along the east coast here of Queensland um, and unfortunately we've had two entanglements of the shark nets as well so we get out there um, we get notification of a whale that might look like it's in distress we we do have a lot of high rises along our our coastline so it's usually the residents who are up in the um, high rises that alert us initially of an animal in distress um, and we'll always go out there and have a look and we've got all the gear um, both from a boat a, a vessel uh, cutting equipment and also staffing expertise to get out there and and uh, hopefully free the individual which we've been quite successful doing this year yeah that's amazing that you guys are doing that because I don't think it gets enough credit for you guys are putting yourself in sorts of dangers to go help these amazing animals and it's something that could definitely be avoided like mm. if we work towards that yeah that's right and as i said you know the variety of of objects that these animals are getting caught up on it's not just a single industry or a single yeah. solution it's about working with the organisations and policymakers to try and make change that does uh, benefit our marine life. And, and one of those changes that we're sort of trying to work towards at SeaWorld is to try and, you know, have impact on what's left out there in the oceans during whale migration periods. So um, tapping into the different industries to see if they can assist us to remove these obstacles. Um, so Absolutely. as you say, you know, all of our work, all of our rescues are voluntary. Uh, we're fortunate that we are funded by uh, Village Roadshow Theme Parks, which is the big overarching company that does own SeaWorld. They, they fund and fully supportive of all of our rescue work, whether it is a whale, dolphin or, or a water bird. So all of our rescue stuff is voluntary and is absorbed through uh, SeaWorld as a company. So very fortunate position to have that uh, incredible support there. That's amazing. And that you facilitate these rescues for not only like the huge charismatic animals like whales and dolphins, but also for like the seabirds and like the little guys that need appreciation too. That's right. And even just tapping into our marine reptiles. So we've had our busiest year this year with in relation to marine turtles and sea snakes. Oh, um, really? We haven't seen this yeah, we've currently got 28 turtles in care at the moment, um, but we've had 74 turtles for the year. So we've also, you know, got a, a very keen um, turtle rehabilitation coordinator, Siobhan, who's been doing a marvellous job with all of those rescue efforts. And it's been, for whatever reason, we don't know, but it's been an incredibly busy year from that front as well. That's so interesting how some years it can be busier for rescues than others without like a clear definition of why. That's so interesting. Yeah. 
we did look at some data points earlier this week and there is evidence that the waters are a little bit cooler this year. We do have an El Nino event coming along. Um, it seems to happen every five to six years and, and we do, do see natural spikes uh, in previous periods and potentially there's a bit of a natural influence going on there because uh, the turtles are coming into us uh, for different problems. One might be floating, one might be boat strike, one might be just really unwell. So they're not all coming in for the same problem. Yeah. So there potentially is a bit of an environmental influence going on this year. So when you were bringing these animals in for rescue, is the goal to like rehabilitate and release them, um, assuming like they're healthy enough and well enough to release them? You got it. So that's our number one goal um, is to try and get these guys back out into the wild. I mean, if I deem an animal uh, isn't suitable for release, then I will be looking for euthanasia as a criteria for that individual because the goal is to get these individuals back out into the wild. Um, we do have a quote or a bit of a saying here at the vet team and also just in marine sciences here at SeaWorld that translating animal care into conservation medicine and, and that's ultimately what we try and do with our everyday activities where we're just looking after the animals here and improving the animal health. The ultimate goal is to, to improve and to have an impact on conservation and those wild populations. So absolutely, the research and rescue side of things is 100% to try and influence positively the, the wild populations out there of all species. I love that. And I love that it's aiming to put them back out there and make it safer for them out there. I think that's really helpful that you guys are doing that. Yeah, thank you. And I mean, we don't do it alone. We work uh, alongside a lot of other organisations and we try and work collaboratively to have a bigger impact. Um, so we've got a couple of other organisations that do definitely assist us with this rescue work. So we don't do it alone, but we, we certainly um, are very proud of the work that we can achieve here at SeaWorld. Absolutely. I feel like we've touched on some two like negative portions of your job, but if you had to say like, mm -hmm your favorite portion of your job, what would it be? Like, what's your like highlight of your day if you get to do it? Oh, the highlight of my day is just hanging out with the animals. You know, I, I, we've already tapped into this was a deep-seated passion of mine from a very young age and just cruising around and being one with the animals um, sounds a little bit cliche, but I could sit there poolside with the seals, with the dolphins, go and hang out with the polar bears. You know, it's spending time with these incredible animals and just appreciating them for what they are is, is pretty special and pretty unique. Um, so, yeah, it's not even tapping into my job role as being a vet. It's just being present with the animals is pretty magical. And I get to do it every day. So it's, it's not a job. It's a bonus that I get paid to do this, to be honest. I love that. That's the best feeling that you just love it so much that you would be there regardless of the pay. Yes, but don't tell everybody that. We should keep that one quiet. Like, <laughs> I'll, oh, my <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it out of the podcast. Don't worry. Yes, yeah, um, no, no. But it is. It is a passion. And, you know, I know I'm, I'm one of, you know, very few people who have been able to turn a passion into a job. And I empower any young listeners or anyone looking to do a career change, you know, truly follow your heart. You know, if you can turn a passion into a career and, and turn Absolutely. it into a full-time thing, you wake up excited every day. And it's a, it's a fantastic feeling. I couldn't imagine living any other way. Absolutely. That's amazing. It truly is like the ultimate goal for everyone, or it should be at the very least. Yeah. You mentioned that you give a lot of school talks and presentations. Why is like scientific communication and like sharing your passion for people so important to you? 
Well, I suppose it's important because talking about my passion just comes naturally. So it's it's not a drag or it's not a chore to talk about what we're talking about. It's a topic I am very passionate about, so I'm very happy to share it with. But I think it's also that it's very important for me to try and empower the next generation of, of um, conservationists to, to follow a career path that might seem like a career path that's unattainable or unachievable because I can tell you now when I was in grade five and got told that every girl wanted to be a marine biologist, I never envisaged that I would be here at this point in my life. So um, it really is about empowering um, both, you know, male and female, uh, young conservationists to, to pursue it. You, you can, you know, you ask the question, did you think you could make a career out of it? You can. You can make a career out of a passion um, of, of loving animals and, and I empower and I, I like to feel or make people feel like that they can, can make a difference. Absolutely. The animals need all the voices they can get supporting them right now. Truly, there's room for everyone in this field. You're exactly right. And look, I'm a vet and that's just one role. There's so many roles when it comes to working with animals or environmental or biology or conservation. There's so many job prospects and possibilities out there. So um, if one door does close or one opportunity does close, then there's certainly going to be another opportunity around the corner to pursue this as a career. Absolutely. Which on that note, if there was a little girl listening to this and she was like, I want to do this when I'm older what would be your piece of advice for her? Well, I suppose I kind of just tapped into it just then is don't give up if an opportunity closes itself on you. Um, it's very easy for me to talk about how I got here and all the successes. But one thing that a lot of people don't talk about is, is opportunities that didn't come to fruition. And I can tell you now my list of opportunities that didn't come to fruition is much longer than my list of opportunities that did actually arise to the career path I had. Um, I applied for jobs left, right and centre when I graduated uh, vet school because I knew I wanted to go straight back into the zoo world um, and, and do the conservation medicine side of things. And I can tell you now I was declined, after, you know, job after job after job because I, I didn't have experience or I didn't have this or I didn't, you know, it, it's one of those things where it's easy to feel disheartened, it's easy to feel deflated, it's easy to feel like it's mission impossible and you're never going to get there and because everyone else seems to be getting the opportunities. But, you know, look at me now. I went through all those knockbacks and I'm, I'm now effectively living the childhood dream. So um, don't give up because people will get knocked back, um, but just keep, keep at it. And if you're following your passion, opportunities will arise. I love that. I feel like you only see people's highlight reels on like social media and like, especially in the academic world, like no one's posting and being like, look at this internship I got rejected from, but yeah. every internship that they're getting, they're getting rejected from like three or four. You got it. And I've actually got a slide when I talk about my career progression and how I got to where I got, I, and I use this PowerPoint presentation. I have a slide which literally shows my career path that I did take and then all the opportunities that didn't happen. And I'm not joking, it's really twice as long. But it's exactly right. Like, you know, if every internship you apply for, yeah, you've, you've been you've declined five other opportunities. But that's natural. That's, that's just life. doesn't mean you give up and you're not good enough. It just oh, is what it is. The sign of like someone who's passionate and keeps fighting and keeps reapplying for these internships or is like, so gung-ho is what you need to have like that like really go get it kind of attitude 
That's it. And, and look, to be honest, I never envisaged that I'd be where I am, but I followed my passion. Like I, I, I literally did follow my heart, followed my passion. And, and, and I, obviously that showed in my work and my approach to work and my career and who I was as a vet. You know, as soon as I was, I was working, as I said, I worked in a small animal clinic doing medicine and surgery that internship year. And as soon as an injured bird would come through the doors, my face would just light up. That was my bread and butter. That was that's what I wanted to do, you know. So these opportunities will arise if you're following your passion and allow your passion to shine through. Absolutely. And a no doesn't mean the end of the world. Like it does, it might mean that there's something better or it might mean that you keep pushing. Like I like that, like having that, like you're, you want me, you want me. Yeah. Yeah. Don't you tell me no, because you don't even know who I am yet. Now good exactly. on you. And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And also, I suppose for those young listeners as well, you know, particularly if you're looking for vets. So let's just talk about vets specifically and embedding the marine world into them. You know, a lot of people, there's a lot of emphasis that you have to be the best in the grade and you have to be getting, you know, um, the top grades and the top marks. And to be honest, you know, I got in later and it's not the end of the world if you're not getting A's and you're not just, you know, there's other avenues to get into vet school. Um, and, and it's not just about getting the, the being the top of the class. So don't be disheartened or, or think um, that vet's not for you just because you're not getting the academic grades. Absolutely. I have said this time and time again, grades do not make the person like it truly, if you're passionate about something and you're willing to put the work in and learn, that's going to show and shine through despite what your grades are. 110%. You got it. You got it. So yeah. And that was, I suppose, uh, the younger me, if that was what was drilled into me, that that was never going to be a possible career path because the grades and I wasn't the best in the class at school. And um, it, it certainly didn't stop where I was going. So don't let it dishearten you if you're being told the same thing. I love that. So now for all the listeners who have decided that you're their new favorite aquatic vet, is there anywheres or new favorite vet in general? Because you do do a terrestrial as well. Um, is there anywhere they can follow you along on social media and check out what you're doing and keep up with you? Yeah, so I'm quite active um, on Instagram. So you can check out my page on Instagram. It's Dr. Claire Madden. Um, and you'll be able to see, I do a lot of all posts of all the different cases that I see, but it does predominantly have a lot of our rescue work. So if you're particularly keen and interested on the marine rescue work that we do here at SeaWorld in Australia, be sure to jump on and check out the Instagram page. Absolutely. And that will be linked below as well. Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. It was so fun to get to chat with you and I've learned so much. Oh, fantastic. It was an absolute pleasure chatting to you and um, have a great day and I'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.